Hello and welcome to Nightlight. You know, one of the difficulties of what I do is also one of the blessings of what I do, and that is to be able to speak to a lot of different people in a lot of different backgrounds, age groups, cultures, and uh, even nations. Uh, and uh, I'm both excited by the opportunity and I'm daunted by it because I know how we all have certain mindsets that we are accustomed to. Now that we live in a global society, so-called, we're exposed to all kinds of things that our grandparents were not exposed to. Uh, and on the one hand, it's good to have a larger view of the world to be informed on a lot of different areas. On another, on another scale, though, it's, I don't know, it's not that good. People are overwhelmed by all kinds of things. And a lot of people, especially from my age group, the baby boomers, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and older, you know, we were all raised on a, a mindset of hurry up and get the gospel out because the Lord is going to come any minute. And that may have served a good purpose at the time. It might have gotten us off of our backsides and gotten us moving. I, I remember so many friends of mine who were really uh, courageous in their way of launching out to different parts of the world with just a shoestring and uh, preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit certainly blessed it and used it. But if you, when you get familiar with church history and, and familiar with other times in church history when people were highly motivated to, to get the gospel out, uh, and they... They did courageous things. And then later on, another generation looks back at them and says, well, it might have been courageous, but I don't know how wise it was. For instance, I deal quite often with, or used to deal quite often, thankfully not so much anymore, but deal quite often with uh, people who had been abandoned by their missionary parents because their parents thought that they had to fulfill their ministry, and so they dumped their children off into the hands of sometimes very ungodly people who misused those children, sometimes sexually, and then they had to get healing, and they were so embittered by the idea of their parents' concept of the gospel putting them in that position that before they could receive any help for their sexual abuse, they had to deal with the, the, the wounds inflicted by their parents and their church systems. So, yeah, in the 70s, late 60s and early 70s, we were all focused on the any-minute return of the Lord and a, a pre-trib rapture accompaniment to, to that for the most part, many of us were. And then uh, 
that set in motion a whole a whole way of living and a whole way of thinking that has turned out for me to be erroneous. Uh, I didn't finish an education because I was told by more than one well-meaning elder, Jesus is going to come before you can graduate, boy. Don't waste your time with all that useless information. Get the gospel out. Well, that was 50 plus years ago. And uh, I had to catch up on my education by myself, which I enjoyed and was grateful to get to do, but it was a lot harder and was stretched out over a lot longer period of time because I was listening to uh, people whose guidance was coming out of a sense of impending doom instead of Holy Spirit wisdom and direction. And so I, I, I want to address some of those things now because once again, here we are with a lot of people. And this time you can hear, you can hear so many points of view from so many websites and so many blogs and so many, you know, you can not only listen to a bunch of it, you can flip it off your fingers uh, across the world to a bunch of other people to get them to listen to it. And if you're not careful, you get a whole mindset going amongst yourselves and nobody's praying, nobody's listening to God, nobody's hearing the voice of the Spirit. There's no peace in it. There's no sense of uh, quiet of heart, quietness of heart. Isaiah says, in quiet and confidence shall be your strength. People don't have any quietness. And they don't have any confidence uh, in the Lord. And they're really uh, hoping to hear some news. It's like uh, in Ezekiel, watchman, what of the night? And the watchman comes back and says, well, the night is far spent, the day is coming, but the, the shadows and the darkness is still here. Uh, people want to hear some prophetic word, not because they really need to hear from the Lord, but because they want to be tranquilized, or at least momentarily, uh, I guess I can use the word comforted, but momentary comfort is really not comfort. The word comfort implies security and uh, being surrounded by and guided by a clarity of wisdom and goodness that gives you a focus to go forward. Uh, that's the, all the ideas that are involved in, in the idea of comfort. So, I just want to talk to you. I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to guide this and, and see where it goes and hope that the Lord will speak to as many of you as he can speak to through my struggle to communicate. Many years ago, Mary and I were in a hotel room in London. We were getting ready to to go speak at a conference that night. Mary was finishing getting dressed 
And I was doing like men have a tendency to do when they don't have anything else to do, and that was sit on the end of the bed and stare at a TV screen. But what made this more unusual was, I mean, most guys stare at something. They'll stare at a ball game or they'll stare at the weather report or something. But I was staring and caught myself staring at just a, a continuous filming of fast-moving water that turned out to be a river running into Lake Victoria in Africa. And I, when I snapped out of my trance and realized I was just sitting there staring at the TV, I began to notice that there were objects in the water. And trying to make out what those objects were there was no commentary. It was eerily quiet. It was just this film of this flowing water with all this stuff in it until finally the, the voice of the BBC news broadcaster broke in gently and began to explain what I and whoever else was looking at it, what we were seeing. What we were seeing was the body parts of many, many, many murdered and obliterated Rwandans. It was 1994, between the months of April and July, a hundred days. It's estimated that some 800 800,000 people were murdered by their neighbors, friends, even husbands who turned on their wives. Uh, throughout history in Africa, churches were considered sacred places that you could go for refuge, but not in the Rwandan genocide. Many people were murdered in churches. Many hundreds were murdered in churches. They weren't just murdered. They were slashed to pieces. Their bodies disposed of in many ways. Finally, we see this, this footage. And uh, it was so terrible that it clogged the stream of the river as it came into Lake Victoria. I could go on with the horror stories of that time, uh, but I went on to the conference that night, had to shift gears in my mind from what I had just been exposed to, to the healing message that we had been preparing to bring to that conference in London. Then all the way across the ocean on the way home, I couldn't get my mind off what I had seen. I got back to the States and I, I can remember sitting in uh, the airport waiting to get our bags and looking around me at the husbands and wives and people traveling and all the, the seeming sanity of the first world and the insanity of the third world. But I had known enough by that time to become aware that the, the, the darkness of the third world was quite often, not always, but quite often and increasingly 
the product of the interference from the first world. So much of the evil and wickedness that was happening in the, the, the lesser blessed countries were set in motion by the graft and corruption and dishonesty of uh, Western corporations. I knew that. I also knew, even though it was early 1990s, I, I knew, I could feel in the spirit, the slow but sure disintegration of our once Christian society that was fast moving opposite of the direction that had made us safe and secure. And I looked around uh, and I, I thought to myself, and I probably said it to Mary, though I try not to impose all my thinking on her to interrupt her peace. But I couldn't help but think and, and say, you know, we, we live in such a temporary situation. We're living on very, very thin ice as a culture. Our goodness and our stability is held together uh, by a, a, a capital of Christian belief and behavior that we are writing hot checks on. We don't have that capital anymore as a nation. And yet we're still banking on that capital to keep our businesses fair, keep our government in proper line, keep our families in, in proper relationship. But it's all beginning to unravel. And all during the decade of the 90s and on into the decade of the two, of 2000 uh, after 9-11, Mary and I spent our time on both sides of the Atlantic addressing these issues and sometimes I felt like I was just putting my fingers in holes in the dike of sanity and I didn't have enough fingers. But then we came home from our last trip uh, to, to England, which was 2005. You can believe that, uh, that many years ago now. Uh, England had been like a second home to us, but we came home because of grandchildren and because of other things that were more pressing to us than traveling around the world for whatever reason. We wanted to obey the Lord, of course, but the Lord seemed to be calling us to, to quiet down and take a, a account of ourselves, an account of the world, an account of our calling. And I was thinking about the, the spiritual principles that had to have gone into play that would set in motion a level of horror in Rwanda on that level. Now, uh, for any of you who've studied that horrible event, it's, it's very much like the spirit of the Holocaust. No, it wasn't, it wasn't nearly so horrendous in, in numbers. Uh, but it was horrendous in cruelty, in inhuman, demonic mistreatment of not only people, but of their bodies once they were killed. A demonic 
rage of dehumanization and inhuman treatment. Men, women, children, there were no children that were shown any pity. And of course, that same, that same thing happened in the Holocaust on a much, much larger level. And I know it's dangerous to compare evils with evils. Some people may take offense at any comparison of evil in other portions of the world to what occurred in the Holocaust. But when it gets down to it, there's a level of evil that once it's embraced, it really, it really is as evil as evil can be. And both in the Holocaust and in Rwanda, there is that level of evil. But here's the thing about Rwanda. Of course, this is true also of Germany. Germany claimed to be Christian. And Rwanda statistically claimed to be 85 to 90% Christian, Protestant, Catholic, Seventh-day Adventist, with only a small portion of Muslims uh, to round out the entire population. Now, what I want to try to get across here, I want to give you a lot of scripture that you can, you can turn to to try to give some understanding of, of this. And then uh, we'll come back and unpack it a bit. In Mark, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and take the gospel of the kingdom throughout all of Israel. He tells them to go into the t every town and village, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you've received, freely give. And then in chapter 11, after he's given them that commission and they, they come back, and then if you go to Luke, Luke tells you when they came back, they were rejoicing because even the demons had been subject to them. The casting out of demons is one of the great manifestations of the coming of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of, of, of the Father, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. First thing he does is cast out the powers of the foreign kingdom, the illegal kingdom. And when the church no longer is dealing with casting out demons, where demons have been taking nests, you know that church is not moving in kingdom power. But I, I, don't, I don't want to get off on that. But Anyway, in chapter 11, it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of giving his commandments to his 12 disciples, he, he departed from there and he went to preach in their cities. And when John heard that Jesus was preaching in their cities, John the Baptist, John was in prison. And when John heard that, that Jesus was manifesting all these miraculous deliverances and healings, he sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus, many of you know this already, to ask Jesus, are you the one I thought you were, or should I look for someone else? Now, we, we know that Jesus and John were cousins. 
We know that Jesus and John had a relationship together, though it, it, it may or may not have been intimate in the early days, just because they were family. They certainly were intimate, uh, close relations. And John understood who Jesus was both by uh, understanding the unfolding of his history with Jesus and also by revelation. John knew the voice of the Lord on, on certain levels. But here's the thing. John was asking a question about who Jesus was based on a, a mindset that had become the popular theological mindset of his people for generations. And that was that Messiah is going to come and destroy our enemies, politically salvage Israel, politically restore the kingship of Israel. And uh, that's how we'll know that he's really the Messiah. And John, though he understands all the truths that we assume he understood, it seems that he understood, look, it's, it's obvious he didn't fully understand. And he asked Jesus, should I be looking for somebody else? And Jesus' response was, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, the dead are being raised and blessed is he who is not disappointed in me. And I used to read that, or I used to hear that, along with other examples of this kind of seeming conflict between what Israel's expectation was and what Jesus was doing. And I would think, you know, well, well Lord, I mean, it doesn't seem fair. They've had all these years of misunderstanding. And now here you come demonstrating your messiahship in a way that they're not prepared for, and you're pretty hard on them for not understanding it. I mean, but here's the deal. They did have access to all Jesus was and all Jesus did. Anna understood it. Simeon understood it. Various other people of Israel understood it. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures in them, you think you have life, but they point to me, and you will not come to me in order that you might have life. In John chapter 8, which I'm not going to take time to turn to, but I hope you will read all of it. John chapter 8, he says to the Pharisees, you are you are claiming to be doctors of the law and experts in the Torah, and yet you don't know me. If you knew my father, you would recognize me. But you have studied and studied and studied, but you don't know my father because you've only studied in order to affirm your own preconceived ideas, and they are worldly ideas of the flesh your only interest is in the establishment of your own materialist, religious, political security. Okay, are you with me in this? And so uh, he says to John, 
see all these 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 manifestations of messiahship are happening all over the place and uh blessed is he who's not disappointed in me john look uh i've been in jail i know how it feels to be in jail i was in jail for my own wrongdoing john's in jail at the hands of a, a crooked political system that's working with a crooked religious system. John knows thoroughly who's behind his imprisonment, though ultimately he puts his tr trust and faith in God. But uh, John's feeling all the human suffering and all the human pain that any of us might feel in the midst of this. John's not sitting there in jail saying, well, it might be painful on a certain level, but I know I know who Jesus is, and I know that everything's unfolding the way it's supposed to. No, John's got terrible conflict going on inside him, theologically, psychologically, politically, emotionally, and even spiritually. All this is going on inside of him. Now, here's this is something comforting. Jesus says to the crowd, what did you go out to listen to when you went out to listen to John? A reed shaken in the wind? No. What did you go out to listen to? A man wearing soft raiment? No, people who wear soft raiment are in king's houses. No, you went out to hear a prophet, more than a prophet. And then he said, there's none, none greater than John as a prophet. None, none greater that's ever lived. And Jesus says that about John while John is going through all these dreadful struggles on the inside. Now, I hope that comforts you a little bit because the you know it's like when God saw Gideon trembling and hiding and the angel of the Lord said, Hail, mighty man of power. See, God calls those things which be not as though they were. God says in Romans chapter 4 of Abraham that he staggered not at the promise of God, neither was he weak in faith. Well, it looks to me like he staggered at the promise of God and was weak in faith, but that's from my point of view. From the only point of view that matters, which is God's point of view, he, he, God was proud of it. And I'll tell you something, God's, God's very likely proud of you. If you're seeking God with all you know how, and you feel the discouragement, and you feel the struggle inside, and there's so many prophetic questions you don't have answered. And so many things you thought you could depend on that turned out to be false. Uh, I mean, let's face it. There's just a lot of prophetic voices out there. They're just, they're just kind of blowing in the wind. I don't know. I don't want to accuse them of just trying to keep a, an audience by saying some new thing. And I'm not putting down real prophecy. Thank God for real prophecy. But you know what I'm talking about. You don't need me to spell it out. I don't want to point fingers at anybody uh, because certainly they could point fingers at me. But all I'm trying to get at you all is you're in a time of lack of clarity when things you thought you had all sorted out based on preaching you've heard all your life is not unfolding like you thought it would. And you may be like John the Baptist wondering, Okay, what's real and what's not real and what am I supposed to believe? And while John is going through those doubts, his creator and Lord and Savior 
is saying of him to the crowd, he's the greatest that has ever lived. And then yet he says, but in the kingdom that I'm announcing, the least in that kingdom is greater than John. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to try to unpack that to explain it because I'm not sure I can fully explain it. But I do know one thing Jesus was saying. In the dispensation that is passing, John has reached the pinnacle of what he can, can be reached. But that's not anything compared to the unfolding of my kingdom that I'm announcing from one end of Israel to the other. Now, I want you to keep in mind now I've begun speaking to you from Matthew chapter 10. Then we're in chapter 11. I'm about to show you, best I can, that there's an, on, an ongoing unfolding message here to the people of Israel. So what's that got to do with Rwanda? Well, I hope to be able to help you understand that because uh, it's a principle that we can avoid reproducing if we will obey the Lord and keep ourselves in line with our calling as kings and priests. Because here Jesus is saying to the people of Israel, this generation, this phrase, this generation, I want you, if you have, if you're following along in your Bible, if you're not driving, the right under, underline every time I, I, I read or refer to this generation. In chapter 11, uh, after Jesus finishes talking about John the Baptist, he says in verse 16 of chapter 11, but I'm saying this to ears, that those of you who have ears to hear, let him hear. Many of you don't have ears to hear. But who will I liken this generation to? He says, you're like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to your friends and saying, we're playing our pipe, but you won't dance. In other words, we're, we're, we're playing wedding and you won't participate. Or we're singing a, a mournful dirge. We're playing funerals. See, they're always seeing weddings and seeing funerals and kids like they would reproduce those things. They would just, they would play them. We're mourning and you won't join in with, with the mourning. You're, you're not cooperating with our child imi childlike imitation of reality. For John came neither eating or drinking, and you said he had a devil. The Son of Man comes both eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber and a friend of sinners and publicans. Wisdom is justified by her children. That phrase, wisdom is justified by her children, is just saying, I mean, we don't need to look for some deeper meaning than is clear, clearly being given. He's saying, look, those of you who do have ears to hear will hear me and you will know that I am the Messiah and you will know that John was my messenger to prepare my way and you will manifest that wisdom by listening to what I'm telling you and then there's, there's many others of you who won't. Then Jesus begins to speak in verse 20. Well, let me just read it. Then he began to rebuke the cities 
where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now, I don't want to get off, get off track here, but please understand the word repent. It doesn't mean they didn't all fall on their faces and cry and beat their breasts and say how wicked they were. We tend to think of repentance as that, and certainly that is true of repentance in its right context. If you need to break, uh, beat your breast and throw dust on your head and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me, that's certainly okay. But when he uses the word repent here, uh, the word repent just, I don't say it just means, it means to change your way of thinking and go in a different direction. It, it takes it, take new information and use that information to change your behavior and direction. And he said they didn't change their direction. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which had done in you, which were done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which were pagan cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And and you, Capernaum, who is hurry, you've been exalted to heaven, but you will be brought down to Gehenna. For if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have repented, it would have remained and repented long ago. But I, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Okay, let's stop here and, and see what, what, what he's saying. He's not saying, I used to struggle with this. Lord, if doing certain miracles would have made Sodom repent, why didn't you go down and do those miracles? Well, that wouldn't have worked because that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying if Sodom had been in the same context of history that you are in and they had heard and seen what I have been demonstrating before them, they would have repented long ago. Here's why. This is vital that you understand this. You can't hear me, Capernaum, because you're too religious. You're so caught up in your own definitions of how it ought to be that when I come and manifest my glory among you and manifest miracles and healings and deliverances, so the kingdom that you've been heard, you've heard all your life is coming. You said, the kingdom is here. There's no excitement. There's a kind of a shoulder shrugging. Have you ever shrugged your shoulders? at the purposes and unfolding demonstration of God, there's a real danger, especially now, as we're, you know, I, I've got to guard my own heart. I see certain things being done in the name of revival. I hear the term revival thrown around. I understand uh, we need to be careful of false things, but we, we also need to be childlike and humble and do like some friends of mine who in the past pastor friends of mine when revival broke out among them and there was all kind of weird manifestations and things that were not comfortable and people would come and say, you know, what are you going to do about it? And he said, well, I'm not going to do anything about it because I don't know clearly what's of God and what's not. 
and I'm afraid to get in the Holy Spirit's way. Well, brother, you need to be careful to keep things in decency and in order. Decency and order doesn't mean keeping it in line with what you're accustomed to so you're not made uncomfortable. Decency and order just means, number one, it's not sinful, and number two, it's not it's, it's in the order of what God is doing. God brought order out of chaos in Genesis chapter 1. I bet you if they, you were there, it wouldn't have been a quiet church service with organ music playing. It was in order, but it was very frightening and dazzling. And on and on we could go. But anyway, are, are, you, are you hearing what I'm saying? Uh, let's be discerning, but let's don't be hypercritical. Let's be discerning, but let's don't let's don't be quick to judge. Let's say let, let's wait and see whether this is the Lord or not, and just test everything to see if, if these things are right, like the, uh, the the Gentile believers did. And uh, anyway, well, I've got a point I'm trying to make because Jesus is still speaking. Now, put it together. He's speaking to this generation, and he's speaking to them about Gentile. This is the second time he has compared Jewish believers to Gentiles, and he's speaking to this present generation that is actually getting to see him. You know, people say, I wish I could have been alive to see Jesus. Well, you... Do you really want that? It depends on a lot of things you don't know about about yourself. Um, a lot of people just ignored Jesus. They just ignored him. And would you have been one of those who just said, well, you know, I go to the temple, I go to the synagogue. I, I know all about that stuff. There's another rabbi. He's preaching. Sounds like it could be good. I got things to do and places to go and people to see. I, I, I you know, not going to be moved by that. And yet, when a Roman soldier, an enemy of Israel, who they all hate, comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, you don't have to come into my house. Just speak the word only and my, my servant will be healed. He's like a son to me. Please heal him. And Jesus turns and sees him and says, I've not seen so great a faith in all of Israel. You know why? Because he wasn't full of religious information. He wasn't full. How many times have you ever been confronted by the Holy Spirit in some situation and you got all this theological information in your head that tells you that what you're hearing God say probably is not the right way to go. It's not. I don't want to get out too, too much on that limb. Maybe we need to start getting out on some limbs. Anyway, we get to, uh, we get to, well, look at verse 25. Jesus said to the Father, after saying this, that he says about these pagan cities, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from those who think they are wise and prudent, and you have revealed them to babies. You've revealed them to babies. I love studying. My goodness, that's what I do. That's what I do. 
I'm sitting here in this study surrounded by books, and sometimes I look at my books and I think, you know, the making of many books, there is no end. And then I think they make good kindling. How much of this stuff that I've got, and they're good books, they're good books. I wouldn't have bought them if they weren't good books, but they, what if they're all wood, hay, and stubble when it's all said and done? I mean, what if it's just wood, hay, and stubble? What if what if the Holy Spirit is a lot happier with me taking one little one little scripture down from the shelf and, and feeding on it until my heart is ablaze from the truth in it and I never touch the other books? Anyway, I love books, but there's a danger in loving learning for learning's sake. Now, I got to be honest, and one reason I probably pursued learning so strongly is because back in the Jesus movement, when I wanted to go study, I was told by well-meaning and good people, but misguided elders, son, you don't need to waste your time in school. Jesus is going to come for you. You can even graduate. You need to be out there getting the gospel out. So in 1973, I left college for lots of other reasons besides this, but, but I left college and threw myself into the Jesus movement. And God used me in spite of my ignorance, in spite of my lack of training, in spite of my lack of fathering and lack of discipleship. And I'm telling you, I made many messes and I may have shipwrecked some people. God have mercy on me. Have mercy on them. Uh, I, I would. You don't know how many times I've thought, "Oh, if I had just properly understood these scriptures, instead of shooting my mouth off half cocked, just quoting what I heard some other half cocked young guy shoot his mouth off uh, about, uh, maybe I wouldn't have misguided so many people." Well, God doesn't expect old heads on young shoulders, and God has mercy on on. Uh, children and fools, and I was both for a while, then I got older, wasn't a child anymore. He still had mercy on me. I'm grateful. I'm not, I'm not talking tongue-in-cheek, but you can have, you know, you can have the spirit of the Pharisees where you, yeah, you search the scriptures because then you think you have a life, but they point to a person, and you will not come to the person. My deep, inner struggles drove me to the person. Uh, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. Uh, my deep struggles and, and conflicts and uh, secret sin drove me to Jesus. And so uh, I'm grateful for all of that. But here's the thing. Keep in mind, this generation, Jesus is talking to this particular generation of Israelites who live under the shadow of the Torah and the temple and are under the rule of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And I don't have time to get into all the political uh, nuts and bolts of all that, but they're very much like what we're dealing with now. The Herodians would be your pagan uh, counterfeit leaders. Your Sadducees would be your uh, materialist liberals and your Pharisees would be your hyper- uh, conservative fundamentalists. And so uh, 
and they all hated each other, the thing they, they did find common ground on was they hated Jesus more. And I want to tell you that that same, that same spirit is present. Uh, they, they, may, they may hate one another, but what they really find common ground in is their hatred of Jesus sometimes. Sometimes, oh, I, listen, I know I'm painting with a broad brush. I'm not saying all fundamentalists are like that. I'm not even saying all Sadducees technically are like that. But when the real Jesus shows up, I'm not talking about the Jesus they can all agree on who stays in the stained glass window and doesn't bother anybody. I'm talking about the Jesus who walks in the synagogue and his very presence makes demon-possessed church members scream out for mercy because they don't want to have to face him and they want the rocks to fall on them. Okay, so uh, we get from chapter 12 uh, we move over into chapter 12, and look what else he says to this generation. Uh, he's, he's, healing, he's healing the sick, because that's what he does. That's what Jesus does. He heals. He drives out the presence of the false kingdom and uh, manifests the presence of his father's kingdom. And he does that by casting out every demon he runs into and healing every disease that he runs across. Uh, anybody who asks him, he heals them. And then uh, verse 15 of chapter 12, it says, when Jesus saw the, uh, how the Pharisees were, were treating people, uh, he went out and healed everybody. Jesus' way of retaliating is to heal. And then he charged them that they should not make him known because he didn't want to be overwhelmed with people. But you know how that goes. They all went and made him known. And uh, he healed everybody in sight. But in verse 22, it says, they brought to him those who were possessed with a devil and was blind and dumb. And he healed him so that the blind saw and the dumb spoke. And all the people were amazed and said, this is our Messiah. This is the son of David. But when the Pharisees heard it, see, you can get so religious that even when there's manifest presence of God, you call it the devil. That's the danger of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But anyway, this fellow only casts out demons because he's in line with Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Jesus knew what they were saying, knew their thoughts. And he said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? But if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, who are your children casting them out by? For there were many people in their generation who were casting out demons. But if I cast out demons... By the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come near to you. Else, how can a strong man's house uh, be entered and his goods be spoiled, except first the strong man be bound? Then he will spoil his house. He that's not with me is against me. He that gathers not with me is scattering. Then Jesus talks about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I won't take our time to talk about now. But he closes this statement 
And you got to picture the crowd. This, this crowd is full of Sadducees, Pharisees, probably some Herodian uh, spies back over in the corner. And then the, the common people who are just hungry to know. But Jesus says, you generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. This is one of my frustrations with Bible study. Is quite, I mean, we, it's a tool and we need it. But I'm, I'm really bothered by chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. You need that for identification. But here's the problem. I'm, I'm showing you a pattern of story that began in Matthew chapter 10. I'm already in chapter 12. I'm headed toward chapter 24. And I'm still dealing with the same dynamics and the same story. And you won't get the meaning of most of these verses if you don't get the meaning of the whole flow of the story. He is sending his disciples to spread the kingdom throughout Israel. In the midst of it, he's rebuking some of the main cities that have seen his greatest miracles because of their shrugging of their shoulders, the danger they're in of embracing religion. We don't need, we don't need reality. We've got the temple. We don't need reality. We've got the Torah. We don't need reality. I'm not saying that the Torah is not reality, but it's dead letter when you've got the real word himself in front of you and you still would rather have the letter, you will not come to me that you might have life. You search the scriptures thinking in them you have life. You won't come to me. This is the spirit of religion. And so Jesus says to those among the people that are in that mind, you generation of vipers, how can you, how can you being evil speak good things? Out of the abundance or overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. Well, what are they speaking? They're speaking their desire to kill Jesus. That's what's in their heart. Because you know what? He wasn't, he was contradicting their preconceived religious ideas of how it ought to happen. And he was the living word demonstrating the meaning of the living word and missing the Messiah, missing him. And so in the next verse, it says, then certain scribes and Pharisees came up to him and said, Master, we want you to show us a sign. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But there will be no sign given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That one of the things about Jonah, he was a prophet to Nineveh, another pagan nation. So all through this, this golden thread here of him addressing the nation, the, the, the nation of Israel, all through this story, he's, he's comparing Israel and their religious thinking to a pagan nation that doesn't even have any religious guidance. And he's showing that the pagans who are childlike and ignorant respond to the real presence of Jesus where the religious educated and self-righteous 
shrug their shoulders. And so he says to them in, in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but there will be no sign given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, another pagan, shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For, shall, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Now watch this next part. So what has this got to do with Rwanda? or Bosnia, or Germany, or America. Watch this. Jesus, and I'm just in, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking there's a, an alteration going on in Jesus' mind, where he, he's speaking to them very strongly, but then he, I can just hear him softening his voice and more thoughtfully saying, hmm, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, he will walk through dry places seeking rest and finding none. Then he says, I will return to my house from whence I came out. And when he's come, he finds his house is empty and swept and garnished. Then he goes and he takes with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so, here's the main point of this whole verse, and most times people leave it off. Even so shall it be with this wicked generation. Jesus is saying all this, all this time, generation, this generation, this is your attitude, this is your condition, and this is where you're headed. He says, the unclean spirit goes out of a man, and he becomes worse than he was before, because he's, he's empty, but he doesn't refill the empty place with reality. And that's what's going to happen to Israel. That's what's going to happen to Israel. We get to chapter 23. Chapter 23. And this in ever-increasing conflict between Jesus and the rulers of Israel finally reaches a climax. Uh, I'm not going to take time to read all of it for time's sake. But listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous and say, if we had been in those days of our fathers, we would not have partake, been partakers with them of 
the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are all children of them who killed the prophets. Jesus is not saying they're guilty because they're the offspring of those who killed the prophets. He's saying you've got the same mindset as them and you're just, you're playing games with yourself, uh, but you're not telling the truth because I'm the greatest of the prophets and you want to kill me. You fill up the measure of your father's wickedness. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the destruction of Gehenna? Well, now, this next verse is interesting. Notice Jesus uses the first person. He says, I sent to you prophets and wise men. Jesus is speaking to Yahweh. I, spent to, I sent to you prophets and wise men, and you killed them all. So that upon you will come all, get this, listen to this. Upon you will come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel, all the way to the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say to you, these things shall come upon this generation. And then the other gospel writers tell us Jesus begins to weep. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered you like children together as a hen gathers her, her chicks under my wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And that takes us right into chapter 24. I think I need to stop here and let you digest what's been addressed so far. Because when we get into chapter 24, we're going to see how the, the warnings that Jesus just unfolded to all of Israel are ignored except by those who embrace him as Messiah. And they are protected and saved from something that is too terrible to talk about. But I won't get into that now. I want to try to make sure you understand. I started talking about Rwanda. I started talking about a, a whole nation. Uh, one eyewitness says of, of Rwanda, something came down over that nation and the whole atmosphere, the whole atmosphere became clouded with devils. The author of uh, the eyewitness account that was uh, written by the general of the United Nations forces he, he finally wrote his memoir, which is uh, several hundred pages, because he, he wrote it really to try to work through his own sorrow and grief and shame. But he titled that memoir, Shaking Hands with the Devil. And somebody asked him, General, how can you still claim to be a believer in God when you uh, saw the horror of Rwanda? He said, you don't understand anything. He said, when you see the horror of Rwanda, 
You're shaking hands with the devil. And if there's a devil, there has to be a God. And the only hope of enduring what you see from the devil is to turn to that God. So do you understand, folks? Try to, let me try to sum up uh, clearly what I'm saying. A nation that has only a religious veneer, 95% of Rwanda is Christian. Well, so what? Nobody in the nation knew how to wield their authority as kings and priests. Nobody was in intercession. Nobody was praying for the whole country. Nobody was forgiving their enemies. The Hutus hated the Tutsis, but the Tutsis hated the Hutus, and they were from the same genetic root. There was absolutely no, no color difference, no ethnic difference. The only difference is uh, one raised cattle, and they were more uppity, and the other raised uh, uh, crops, and they were more common people. And it, it became a, a financial clash of warfare in the element of economics and ownership of property. It was mammon. It was the worship of mammon. Just like in America today, it's the worship of mammon. It's you don't think you don't think poor people can be full of greed. People who don't have money are are, are just as capable of being greedy bloodsuckers as the rich people they claim that they're rebuking. And the only reason they're rebuking them is because they worked hard to get money. Sometimes they were crooked to get money. But most of the time, they just worked hard to get money. Anyway, we're all capable of manifesting this level of evil on every level of our own lives. And just because we're Christians, just because we're a Christian nation, what did Israel say when they were confronted with their evil and their wickedness? They said, when you have this Jesus to be your king, we have no king but Caesar. That was because they wanted to protect their economic and political interests. We have no king but Caesar. What about this man, Jesus? Let his blood be on us and on our children. And in just a few years, that would come to pass in detail. We'll talk about that in our next session. But right now, I want you to understand, beware that we are not going to just automatically be supernaturally protected from dire straits just because we are, quote, a Christian nation or have been a Christian nation. That's all true and it's all important, but it's irrelevant to where we are now in our daily battle with evil. Do you love your enemies? Have you forgiven your enemies? Are you careful to pray for your enemies? I pray for my enemies that they be brought down and destroyed so they might repent. That's that's how you pray for wickedness in high places. But my wrestling match is not with them. My wrestling match is with principalities and powers who are allowed to come in and take over once the church has abandoned its place and the politics is totally in the control of the wicked. Then, then the power of darkness comes in and takes the place of the human wickedness and starts manifesting what happened in Rwanda, what happened in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, 
what happened in Somalia, what happened in Germany. Same scenario happened in Germany. And I will tell you, it can happen here in America if Christian people who should be on their knees interceding and standing in the gap and ruling against principalities and powers and forgiving our enemies and loving our enemies and ministering the gospel and all of its uh, uh, blessings to any place we can do it. If we're not doing that, then we're not being salt and light. And then we end up being trampled under the foot of men not devils, but under the foot of men. But if those men are ruled by devils, it's like being trampled under the foot of devils. So, Father, I pray for every man and woman and young person who's hearing this message. I pray, Father, that you will search our hearts and see if there is any wicked way in us that's wearing a clerical collar or carrying a Bible, any wicked way in us that is really a religious spirit that's counterfeit, that's not really the spirit of Christ, so that we might, not escape a bloodbath. That's not it at all. That we might stop any bloodbath and rule against our enemies by proclaiming the kingdom and demonstrating the, the power of the kingdom to cast out devils, heal the sick, raise the dead, and preach deliverance to the poor. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.